Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're doing something a little different with this interview. We're speaking with both Shane Nyquist and Jeremy Wheat of Universal Ibegin. This episode dives into a subject that I've become more and more interested in. That's the medicinal and healing potential of psychedelic therapies. Shane is the founder and chairman of Universal Ibogaine, and Jeremy has taken the lead as CEO. We do get into some discussion of finance around their deal and how Shane sees the market embracing the company. But we also get into a detailed discussion from Jeremy on the benefits of Ibogaine and the business model they're going to be building out. There's no doubt that we're facing an addiction crisis that previous therapies have utterly failed at fixing. And I think the promise of Ibogaine is something that we should all know more about. As with all my interviews, this is for information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice of any kind. It has been produced with the input of the company's management, but there's no guarantees of accuracy or completeness of the content shared. All that said, I encourage you to listen and learn. Enjoy the show. On the line, I have Shane Nyquist, who's the chairman and founder of Universal Abigail, and Jeremy Wheat, who is the CEO of the company. So, gentlemen, thank you very much for coming and joining us today. The reason why I reached out to do this interview was it's twofold. One, I've got a big interest in the world of Ibogaine and where that's going from a therapeutic standpoint. The second part there is definitely into Shane's capital markets experience. You spent over 30 years financing deals. So I'd like to tap into a bit of that. But I figure what we do is, why don't we start talking about Universal Ibogaine, your company first off, and then we can build into some of the capital market stuff. Shane, can you start us off with the mission and the vision that you have for why you brought the group together for Universal? Sure, I can. And that is my number one passion these days. And about two years ago was the first time I heard the word Ibogaine, and it was as foreign to me as, as anything I'd ever heard and required some serious consideration. You know, I, I took a, a gal down there who was doing two grams a day of fentanyl and was lucky to be on the right side of the grass at that point. And from the hospital, from a live and die situation, I was able to get her into the Clear Sky Clinic in Cancun, Mexico, where we have treated 3,700 people over the last seven years at the guidance and safety protocol put together by Dr. Solo. This company and Ibogaine itself was in FDA trials in the late 90s. And in my opinion, they got the short end of the stick about the same time was Oxycontin patents and all of the deluge that's happened since then. So Ibogaine is, in my opinion, something that can move the needle in an industry with a 95% failure rate. But I then put a wife into Betty Ford some 40 years ago, 38 years ago, and she was one of the lucky 5% who's still sober today. And I thank 
the greater gods for that. But the system itself is failing. The medical system and everything with the magic pill that has created the addiction cycle that we're in today is approaching 30%. 20% is a pandemic. 30% is way over limit that I've never seen before and is the closest thing to a miracle that I've ever seen. Can you expand on that? Because when, when we talked in our previous conversation, you actually you went in on personal experience there. And I mean, you mentioned one of the best days of your life should have been buying a beautiful piece of real estate. Instead, you took your wife into rehab. Betty Ford. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, that and of 30 girls that were in that program, that. she's the only one that's sober today. So, you know, I have some personal reasons. I've lost a lot of friends, as we all have. If somebody tells me that somebody has somebody in their family with a problem, unfortunately, that doesn't surprise me anymore. It would surprise me if they don't. Because as I said, it's approaching 30% and it's enough. There needs to be something that makes a difference. I'm going to give you my understandable process of ibogaine and then Jeremy could give you a much greater molecular discussion of it. But in your brain is a neural sensor that's like a wire with insulation. Years of addiction or abuse, where's the insulation off that wire? Ibogaine, which comes from... Africa and is most commonly in Cameroon and Gabon has been used in boys to men ceremonies for a thousand years. But when used in flood doses, it acts like a sticky Prozac, re-adheres to that neurosensor in your brain that's lost its insulation, re-insulates that wire, and literally takes you back to a pre-addictive state for a three to five month period, depending on your body's metabolism, et cetera. So Jeremy, maybe you could give a little bit more of a molecular description and where we're at, you know, which is entering clinical trials two and hopefully get into clinical trials three as quickly as possible. Yeah. What I would like to say there is that, Shane, I thought that was a really interesting way of framing up Ibogaine and how it works in the head. I've never heard that explanation before. And Perhaps, Jeremy, you can expand on that and then touch on some of the other points Shane would like you to. Yeah, sure. So Ibogaine is a unique molecule. It's not a classical psychedelic like LSD or psilocybin. It actually targets many different receptor sites in the brain that do different things. To our knowledge, and it's not fully understood, but at least 10 different receptor sites. So that's the serotonin receptors, serotonin transporter, the opioid receptors, the nicotinic receptors, the NMDA receptors. So it sort of sits on your head and plugs in and rewires your central nervous system and produces something called glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor, which are basically the helper cells to support re-sprouting of nerve cells in the brain. So absolutely renews and refreshes your brain and also your central nervous system. So there's nothing like Ibogaine. It's not comparable to any other molecule on the planet. It was originally used, as Shane said, in Gabon. Originally, it was discovered by the pygmies many, many thousands of years ago, maybe as far as 50,000 years ago. We simply don't have the history. There was no written texts. At some point within the last 200, 300 years, it was transferred over to an ethnic group called the Fong, which is F-A-N-G, like Feng. And then it became sort of better known during the colonial project. Then you found that the French who colonized that part of the world, they started to take an interest in sort of botanic, botany. And they took the aboga plant back to France. And the first isolation of the ibogaine molecule took place in the early 20th century. 
And then France has a whole hidden history that no one ever talks about in the Anglophone world of use of Ibogaine. It was actually in a product called Lombarine, which is the name of a town in Gabon, and was used as basically a muscle stimulant for athletes from the 30s onwards. It's actually now illegal in France due to a, a mortality over 10 years ago. Then we flip over to the US, and under the CIA's MK Ultra program, it was used in the 1950s alongside psilocybin and other drugs. There's a character called Harris Isbell at the Kentucky Addiction Clinic, and he was basically using Ibogaine on former addicts who were African-American prisoners. So there's a shady side to Ibogaine in the US in the beginning, but then jump forward to 1962 and a young 19-year-old chap from New York who was into experimentation of different drugs. He actually had a heroin addiction. He tried out Ibogaine and realized his heroin addiction had gone. And that was really the founding moment. This chap, Howard Lotsoff, who's in a way in, in the Anglophone world, in America, in the West, He's seen as sort of the grandfather or the father of Ibogaine. And he's the person that really discovered its anti-addictive properties. Shoot forward 30 years, not much happened from 1962 onwards, this and that. But basically where we got to in the 1990s was an eminent neurologist called Professor Deborah Mash put Ibogaine through clinical trials with the FDA in the U.S., Unfortunately, she ran out of funding twice. So there's two semi-completed phase one studies. And we are hoping um, as Universal Ibogaine to partner with Dr. Mash and take Ibogaine through to start at phase two. But this is very much up for um, discussion. Jeremy, yeah. I, I have to say, I mean, I can see why Shane has brought you in as CEO. You're <laughs> just He's a rock star. I told you you'd there. get the right interview. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the knowledge is, is amazing. <laughs> It is fascinating because it does bring deep anthropology, you know, ethnography from Central Africa, link it up to the CIA, link it up to, you know, a kind of beat scene in New York in the early 1960s. And it's got these incredible molecular properties. There's an irony, actually. I don't often say this, but Ibogaine is known for its anti-addictive properties. But it turns out that people that find out about Ibogaine sort of become addicted to it or at least obsessed with it. So there's something just deeply, deeply fascinating about this molecule, the way it brings in different layers of different parts of the world and the scientific aspect. A lot of people become absolutely obsessed about Ibogaine. Shane, I want to get into Universal Ibogaine and where you're going from a standpoint of the QT, qualifying transaction, and, and your capital markets path forward. But before then, Jeremy, can you get into where the industry is right now and some of the hurdles you're facing? But then also, I just want to bolt onto there what the business model is specifically as it relates yeah. to the company you're building together. Yeah, I'll speak to both of them in one go. So there's several factors at work here. The first one to mention is that there is very much a status quo around how you address addiction. So you have harm reduction. In the case of Canada, you have the downtown east side. You know, you have people in a desperate situation with no money. So it's really about how to keep them as safe as possible, which is the essence of the whole harm reduction approach. But then you have, on the other hand, you know, traditional detox clinics. And in the case of opioid addiction, there's a standard approach. There's the AA, thera sort of therapeutic group community. And everyone's used to it being the way it is. As Shane said at the beginning, it's not particularly effective, but it is what we have. And so the biggest hurdle is just changing people's minds and sort of getting into those spaces and introducing Ibogaine as an idea and then persuading people that, look, hey, we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but there is this amazing tool coming down the pipe. And let's say you like to use it. Let's see if we can work together. 
then the second thing I'd say is there is a negative perception of Ibogaine. There is maybe 80 or 90 underground clinics in Rosarito, just over the border from San Diego. There's pop-up clinics that just come up and go down, and there's just no medical safety attached with it, and people do die, sadly, just because what you have is people that sort of get liberated from their addiction by Ibogaine and then realize, oh, I could turn a buck with this. But actually, the negative perception of Ibogaine, you know, it's perfectly safe in a medical contacts with effective exclusion criteria, with pretreatment screening, with effective inpatient screening and aftercare. It's absolutely perfectly safe. It's just like any other medical procedure, but it can't be taken yeah, on your own in a hotel room or somebody providing sitting for you and so on. That's just, Ibogaine is not like psilocybin. It can lead to death, not the molecule itself, but in combination, for instance, if you've still got an opioid on board, then in combination with that, Ibogaine can be fatal. So overturning that negative perception and also just the perception of Ibogaine in relationship to you know, a marginalized community, which is the addiction community. So there is that negative surround. So you know, one of the tasks we have to do is basically give a much more positive association, link it with wellness, you know, with getting better and living the good life and that kind of thing. And then the final thing I'd say, Corey, is just that it's not a pill that you take and suddenly magically you're a different person. It's not a limitless type thing. We don't believe in the biomedical model that you just ingest this molecule and suddenly you're a different person. It has to be taken in a holistic or therapeutic context. So we think of it as Ibogaine-assisted therapy rather than just going to take Ibogaine itself. You stand a much better chance of having a lifelong liberation from addiction if you do it in a therapeutic context. So those are the, the hurdles we're facing. And then just to flip into the business model, well, you know, our critical path is basically the uh, clinical trials that Shane was talking about. We are hoping to jump into phase two to be discussed with Health Canada. There is a lot of prior data around that we will be using in our clinical trial application. But basically, either we are lucky and we can play our cards right and we can set up initial model clinics at the end of phase two, at the start of phase three. Worst case scenario, we have to wait until some way into phase three. So it's a difference between maybe three and five years away. We're setting up the model clinics across Canada. Canada is where we start. It's proof of concept. And then we're basically going to franchise out that model around the world. Clinical trials, phase three, we're definitely hoping to aim for multi-country as well as multi-site. So we're focusing on Australia, New Zealand, potentially Israel, and potentially a couple of other countries for phase three. So it's a bit like yeah, the EU potentially. So anyway, phase three, we've got all this spread around uh, different countries. And in those countries, the franchise model will, will be rolled out. So I would say within the next 10 years, it will also include the US. How long it takes for the US, I'm not sure. Does the EU come on board before the US? Likely. But you know, our idea is to have hundreds, if not thousands, of franchise clinics by the end of this decade. It's really interesting to see how you guys are bringing it together. And I mean, one of the reasons why I did reach out to Shane was to talk finance, to talk capital markets. And I mean, we have a very unique system in Canada being public venture capital. And my question for you, Shane, is, I mean, you spent 30 years in the finance business uh, yeah. and to build this company out, you're going to need millions of dollars. What's the finance path forward? Right now, you're, you're about to do a QT. Can you walk us through the deal and walk us through, I think, what we sure. discussed with the rights offering? Sure, I can. This has been the heavy lifting phase, getting the safety protocol into Health Canada such that they would permit this going forward. You know, I probably was... Involved in 12 of the first 15 LPs in the marijuana sector, and that was based primarily on medical treatment, being able to take a kid from an epileptic seizure of 200 a day down to two a week is 
the primary basis of my interest in marijuana and the recreational market is, you know, something that should be personal. Anyway, I think you got the gist of that. Long story short, I've leaned on some of my friends over the last 30 years, raised about $5 million. All the stock was done at a dime. All of the stock will not be tradable for 90 days after the liquidity event, which will be the IPO. Shabir Premji is a dear friend of mine that did a $350 million oil sands exit with me. I know he'll get this over the line and the company will be administered properly. We brought in some other directors recently that have added to that fail-safe system. Jeremy, as you can see, is a rock star who knows the Ibogaine industry inside out. And last but not least, Patrick Krupa was the second person in history after Henry Lotsoff to treat himself with Ibogaine. Patrick launched Mindbox, which was the third internet portal in the U.S., made way too much money at a 22-year-old age and found himself with a 12-year heroin addiction, was part of the trials and the work done in the 90s on the FDA trials and has been a spokesperson for Ibogaine ever since. Patrick is behind the scenes doing everything possible to move us to the next level. Back to the stock again for a minute. I'm now going to do a 10 million raise at 25 cents with a five-year warrant. And that warrant is going to trade in conjunction with the IPO, which is going to be done at 50 cents with either a half or a full warrant yet to be determined. But that same warrant will trade. So you know, I have a bet with a dear friend of mine, Chen Becklin, who's also our second largest shareholder at this point. And seeing a warrant trade higher than a stock is an unusual phenomenon. But I think in this case, you may see it again. But either way, I'm doing this at a $40 million market cap at the moment. Most of my peers that are out trading already are north of $100 million. So that's kind of the initial concept. How much am I going to raise? We don't raise $250 million and take this company to where I think it can get to, which is... This is not a few new companies. This is a whole new industry that is going to require education because everybody wants to do psychedelics, but they're afraid of doing them. So we're looking at putting educational ecotourism into a lot of the resorts in some of the bigger places in the world, Thailand, Vietnam, Belize, variety of areas like that. It also is going to require a funding industry General Motors made a lot of money building cars and selling them, but they made more money through general acceptance, financing the people that bought those cars. We're going to be in the finance business too, and we're going to launch a bond fund in London that will help doctors acquire these clinics. This is the best business model that I've ever seen. I've been involved in 500 liquor stores, and the best return is a 28% return. And this has got a north of 40% recovery or ROI on an annual basis, which means you're looking at a two and a half to three year payout and you're contributing to society. You're helping solve the problem. You like what you see in the morning when you get up and you go to work because you're saving lives. And I don't know anything more important than that at the moment. Families have been decimated by addiction and disease for 30 years and I don't see it getting any better. I see it getting worse. So Ibogaine is the only logical direction to go here. One thing I find interesting, Shane, is your choice and when you speak of the rights offering and having the five-year warrant attached. Why is that? What was the the impetus to do that versus just a common share offering with perhaps a, a short well, attached? Sometimes clinical trials can take longer than I like for sure, but five years is going to give you a warrant that will cover the entire 
clinical trials basis. And uh, we're going to show you statistically when you go from clinical trials two to clinical trials three, the net increase in market caps from that point is somewhere between a billion and a billion and a half dollars. So the fact that you have this warrant gives you the life of the clinical trials, should they take that long, God hope, God willing, it won't. And this is something that needs to be made available. But while we're in clinical trials three, it's my belief that we can be treating people and generating revenue for the company and bringing a solution. Well, it's just to say that Canada is the perfect country to start. It's no coincidence that, you know, you have that combination of being able to build out psychedelic companies in Canada first rather than anywhere else in the world. And you've got this Health Canada, which is basically up there with the FDA in terms of rigor and process. So on the one hand, in terms of our clinical trial process, we will be doing everything to the minutest detail in terms of what's required. But on the other hand, Shane is implying we know why Ibogaine works. We know it's safe in a medical context. We're all about that medical context. So there will also be communications campaign and a stakeholder engagement campaign, which is trying to make sure that we have the most efficient processes possible. You know, in some cases, phase three can drag on for a long time. So we're hoping to make sure that we do everything in terms of gathering everybody around the project to make sure that there's the proper amount of momentum. We do believe that Health Canada wants this to happen as efficiently as possible. From our perspective, it's frustrating that we can't just open clinics through the special access campaign now because we're sure that they would be 100% safe. We're sure that they would start to address this horrible epidemic in Canada and elsewhere in the world. But we do have to go through the due process of the clinical trial process. But we'll make sure, like I said, that the roadmap is as short as possible so that we can open clinics as soon as we can. Excellent. Now, Jeremy, if you don't mind, I, I wouldn't mind tapping on Shane's shoulder to expand on a bit of his capital markets experience. Shane, I mean, you spent over 30 years financing deals. Talk to us sure. a bit about the brokerage industry. I mean, from sure. Canaccord and before that, you've had a, a very seasoned career, but I'm curious to your input on where the brokerage industry's at and what's happening there. Well, you might not like all of it, but let's start. Let her rip, bud. Let her rip. (laughs) Let's start in 1929 when we had the last crash. In 1932, they brought in the Bank Act. The Bank Act said banks will not own brokerage firms, insurance companies, trust companies, and rating agencies. Tell me where we are today. It's 100 years later. We're making the same mistake all over again. And you just saw the asset-backed disaster in the U.S., which was a compilation of mortgages that were rated AAA by Standard & Poor's, which is owned by the banks that were putting paper out. You can't get any larger conflict of interest than that. It's still going on. We just went through another couple of bubble-popping experiences while we were going through C-19. The oil prices popped. There was a lot of things that we rolled into that. And quite frankly, you're not going to want to hear this either, but ETFs I would be very careful with as they're owned by less than 10 to 15% of the underlying asset. So if everybody decided to play musical chairs and wanted their chair at the same time, guess what's going to happen? We're going to have another disaster. So that's the big picture. Here's the little picture. Banks in the late 80s, Reagan deregulated the industry and we made a conscious decision at Canaccord that it was either get big or get out. So we acquired nine firms in six years, the last one being a merger with Genuity, which was sort of an exit strategy for a number of us. 
I tried retiring eight years ago and wasn't very good at it. And, and the marijuana sector was impending and it wasn't hard to see that that was going to be a major financing opportunity and the ability to bring some regulatory reforms like rights issues. So Rory Godino and I brought in rights issues. We brought in early warrant redemption programs. And at that time, there was 12 brokerage firms. And we said, if you don't do something, you're going to be down to four. Well, they got down to five and they're back up to about eight now. But you can only beat your head against the wall for so long. And those reforms made a difference. The marijuana market got way ahead of itself, in my opinion. We did tweet somewhere in the 125 million market cap when it hit 22 billion two years ago. It became a little ripe for the picking along with the rest of the marijuana sector. This sector, mental health, is the biggest market I've ever seen. Can you reference your work with early on with cannabis companies and financing those? What are we going to see now? What's the playbook that you can pull out of the, the experience you had? Well, I think there's going to be a period of consolidation. A lot of these things are not good business models at the moment. The recreational market was... Oh, no. So within the context of Ibogaine. Well, in, within the context of Ibogaine, I think the consolidation phase in the marijuana market is going to take three to five years. I think the psychedelic market that is now emerging and deals with a market that is a hundred times bigger than the marijuana market at a minimum. And the benefit to society and Trudeau brought in the right to die some years ago. And if you look at the numbers on how many people have exercised under the right to die, that's about a $5 billion savings to the healthcare system. Addiction in Canada is $40 billion a year. If we can get 10% of addicts back to work, that's $4 billion. And it reduces the healthcare cost by $4 billion. Now we got all of a sudden $8 billion to work with, and maybe we can build a few more roads or improve technology or build out universities. And technology is what advances life, right? And if you're spending all your money looking after the avails of the pain and suffering that have been created in the population, hopefully we're entering a little more of an enlightened phase where we can take that money, reduce those costs, and start to put it to places that can garner better technological development. Technology is what changes people's lives and, and allows them to progress. So you'd certainly love to see that replaced with healthcare concerns and mental health and pain and suffering that is being imposed on families based on a few greedy I mean, industries. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess we're coming close to the end, but on an inspiring note, we're working really hard on this, but the thing that keeps us all energized and motivated, not just in Ibogaine, but other psychedelics, is psychiatry is basically a 19th century profession at the moment without the tools. And all your psychiatrists have had is symptom maintenance, whether it's for PTSD, for depression, or in the case of Ibogaine, for addiction. And it's amazing to be finally alive at a time when there are going to be cures for mental health afflictions and to be part of the process of bringing these tools to the world so that everyone in the world will have access to them is, well, it's a privilege to be part of it. And no matter how long the day is, to think back that we were actors, we may be forgotten in the future, but from our own personal perspective, to know that we were working to basically bring psychiatry, an entire discipline of the health sector into the 21st century is, I'm honored to be part of it. That's amazing, Jeremy. I appreciate that. And, and Shane, to ask you, any final thoughts you have about Universal Abigail and the deal you're pursuing here? 
Well, put it this way, after 38 years in the business of considering going over the dark side, this is the first time I've actually made the jump, and, and I'm kidding when I call it the dark side, but I'm not interested in a small company that makes some money and goes away. I'm interested in trying to be part of the emergence of a new industry that is going to create thousands and thousands of jobs and a new paradigm of how we're going to treat each other in society, hopefully. And a small company doesn't interest me. What are we going to raise over the next couple of years? If we don't raise $250 million, I'll be disappointed because it's going to take that much to get this where it needs to be and bring the people on board and do the research and continue to build this company. And I'm good for another 10 years or so. Jeremy's young enough. And Corey, you guys need something to do that is a lot less damaging. So, <laughs> so here's a new industry. You guys do a better job than we did maybe in some of our other endeavors in the big pharma sector. Of, of I always get a laugh when my dear friend Chief Campbell says, you know, We've been using this stuff for a thousand years. He says, you white guys are the guys that made it illegal. It wasn't our idea. <laughs> and you know what? He's right. And, you know, their grandfathers passed it down from their grandfathers. And we're the guys that decided that we had a pill for everything and uh, that we should make a whole bunch of money on it and call it Big Pharma. So I may not make some friends there, but I don't really care at this point because I'm old enough to... <laughs> I've done a lot of things, and this is where we're going. And if it hurts a few feelings along the way, then so be it. Hmm. But it's time that society started giving a shit about each other and doing things that are progressive and useful. Well, Shane, I, I'm excited for you guys because I think that the plant in itself and the potential of what's going to come from that combined with the experience that you have at the table both with your capital markets experience and as Jeremy's brought on and, and everyone else around the deal here. It's a very exciting time and it's a very exciting opportunity. So I want to thank you for walking me through this. It's been interesting and I appreciate your time. Thank, you, thank you very much for your time. And guys like Jeremy are the future of this industry and we're here to support them. So. Excellent. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.